Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I'll be looking at the letters of Thomas Jefferson. We've been looking at them for quite a while. This, I think, this is the sixth episode in which I have been diving into these these almost 700 pages of letters collected in the Library of America edition of Thomas Jefferson's writings, about half the volume. I was actually looking at this volume, and I, I think this might be the largest volume I grappled with in this whole series. Um, some may have got close, but it's the final page, this is the end of the index, is 1600. Uh, this might be about as thick as, as these things get bound. Wow, they, they, they did, I noticed they did make them a little bit thicker in the early run of this, this series. They've been kind of getting a little bit, get shorter, um, which I don't know. Yeah, there's once in a while a big one that comes out. But they, they vary in length from about 800 to 62. This is at the upper end. But um, anyways, we're getting towards the end. And this episode, we're really going to be just looking at letters that were written in his retirement. And that's going to be the case for, for our next episode, too. Um, I'm, you know, there, there's a lot of them. His, his pace seems to slow down or he doesn't write as important ones that the editor thought should be included later in his life. But we got enough to work with here just with the letters from 1813, 1814, and 1815. Now, in the previous episodes, I've just been kind of bouncing around from his life and his, in his, in his um, you know, his personal life w with the, the letters. Uh, here, I'm just going to kind of sum up what's going on in his life in these three years, because there's not really not that much to talk about. He's just in Monticello. He has just, he, he lived there after his retirement. He pretty much stayed there. Uh, he, you know, corresponded with people. He reunites with, or he's reconciled with John Adams. Um, and really not that much. He... He writes a biographical sketch of, of Captain Meriwether Lewis for the Lewis and Clark expedition, but he never really publishes that into a, a book or anything. Um, maybe his most his significant achievement in this period is his plan for public education for Virginia, which we will look at. That was in the form of a letter to a man named Peter Carr. Um, and then you have the War of 1812, yeah, started in 1812 and would finally be resolved in 1814. And Jefferson would be a, a staunch supporter of the U.S. in that war, seeing it really as an extension of, of the goals of the American Revolution and preserving the independence of the United States in the face of foreign kind of inter intervention. Um, and then, I, you know, the only other thing I noticed looking at the biography was that he sold his library to the United States government in 1814, partially to pay off his debts. I was always under the impression that Jefferson, Jefferson uh, kind of gave his library, his library to to the to the U.S. government to form the core of the Library of uh, Library of Congress. It did form the core of the Library of Congress, but it sounds like he actually sold it because he had a bunch of debt payments to to start to deal with, and he would never manage that in his life. He would try various things to deal with his debts, but um, ultimately he would he would die in debt, and his estate would have to deal with that. So that's all that really happened in his in his life in these years. That's really notable. Um, so let's just jump right into the letters of of eighteen thirteen. Now, the first letter here is to uh, John Mielish, and uh, from Monticello. All these are from Monticello, I think. Um, January 13, 1813. And this is the beginning of a change in Jefferson, which we actually saw hints of it in the previous set of letters, where he started to, to basically understand that the war with England and the Embargo Act and these different... Um, you know, things that happened late in his presidency and Madison's presidency really did promote this domestic manufacturing and did kind of become the root of the American Industrial Revolution. 
Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of one of the contradictions of the Jeffersonian era is that they came into power kind of rebelling against the Hamiltonian vision and they ended up implementing much of the Hamiltonian vision, at least by accident. And by this point, he's kind of come to terms with manufacturing, at least as part of the U.S. economy. I don't know if he's given up entirely on the agrarian ideal. He, you know, he, that's probably still his, his preference. And once in a while, he hints like, you know, the best manufacturing is still done in homes. And he says, like, down south, we still make stuff in our homes. But um, he, he writes quite a lot here about this uh, transformation of, of, of the nation to something more manufacturing. But he also then, you know, continues to have a lot of reservations against what he calls kind of the federalist, the, well, the federalist faction. It's still around, of course. They would never take power again in, in the United States. They'd eventually fall out of favor and there'd be a new party system emerging, you know, around the time of Jackson and Van Buren and those people. But he's still got a, a kind of concern about the Federalists. And he, as always, he breaks up the Federalists into different groups. He, he calls them here the leaders. The, and the leaders are the people who consider the English Constitution the perf model of perfection that the United States should move towards. That actually see the U.S. Constitution as flawed in that it's not English enough. Right? Now, Jefferson would say the Constitution is flawed, but in that it was not Republican enough. Right? But then there's um, other groups within the Federalist Party who he sees not really as the leaders, but as people who are just kind of dragged along, you know, despite, you know, their best wishes or whatever. Or basically they get pulled into this movement and into this government and they kind of go along with it. But they're not, they're not I guess they're not Republican enough to resist the, the temptation of federalism. And he does admit there are some good Republicans up, up north as well. Now, one other thing I see in this this letter to to John Mealish is he talks a little bit about his memory of George Washington, and I'll get to a letter where he writes specifically on George Washington later. But he talks about changes he'd make to the Constitution, and he's very loose about it. He's like, well, maybe we should have term limits for Senates, or maybe we should have a shorter term for senators, or maybe... Um, you know, there should be more ways of keeping judges responsible except impeachment, you know, uh, and all these kinds of things. And he doesn't really take the Constitution that seriously the way people now sometimes do as kind of an internal absolute document. I mean, he really did believe that this was a document that, that was meant to be changed. That's just a placeholder. And of course, I, I acknowledge that the Constitution has been rewritten two or three times in American history through the amendment process. But I get the sense that Jefferson had a a quicker timetable in mind for how often this constitution would change. So around the same time we have a letter to Madame de Stal, um, which is all about the conflict between Britain and France, and, and that's got to be on his mind a lot. And his, of course, preference is, is some kind of neutrality, but he's got to, he really does realize that Bonaparte is just a tyrant by this point. And then which tyrant, which tyranny do you support, or which tyranny do you kind of back more? And he's kind of got a, a curse on both your houses here, partially, but this, this is because Bonaparte allows him to, to kind of say, well, Bonaparte's really the one who kind of corrupted the, the French Revolution. But he really emphasizes just how devastating Bonaparte's rule has been to, to France. He totally condemns Bonaparte's um, domestic policy. I think it's in this letter or another. He just really lays into that. He's just incompetent in terms of domestic policy. All he is is basically like a... A, a jock who is good at battle, right? But at the end of the day, he, he still thinks Britain is kind of a 
Brigger Threat, he writes, The object of England is the permanent domination of the ocean and the monopoly of the trade of the world. To secure this, she must keep a larger fleet than her own resources will maintain. The resources of other nations then must be impressed to supply the deficiency of our own. This is sufficiently developed and evidenced by our successful strides toward the usurpation of the sea. Um, and of course, the United States is at war with Britain at this time, so it's not surprising that he's going to emphasize the, um, the the evils of Great Britain, but he doesn't like have too many kind words to say for France anymore. So his uh, furious defense of the French Revolution has been a bit uh, alienated by the, the fact of of Bonaparte, it seems. Um, and then he talks about why the United States is at war with Britain. He, he basically says it's all about maintaining neutrality, and that's really the goal at the end of the day. And that, there, just as he did with the constitutional crisis or the, 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 the colonial crisis before the Declaration of Independence, he always blames it on that. Britain saying we tried everything you know we, we did everything we could to maintain peace uh, now remember of course it was the United States that declared war in the war of 1812 and it wasn't even the states that were most profoundly affected by it that voted for it. representatives from the southern states that weren't as affected by um, uh, the what the British were doing um, were were the ones who, who who most aggressively supported the the um, the war, like impressment, like that was that was an issue that didn't really affect the southern states that much. Impressment affected the northern states because they had the maritime, they had the sailors and the whalers and the merchant marine. So, anyways, um, it's it's of course a very it's politicized in the sense that he's still kind of speaking for the United States as an American speaking to a foreigner. Um, but I just think what this document shows us is just um, you know how far. He's gone from the time when he thought Bonaparte would be a strict defender of, of the French Revolution. Um, obviously, that's not the case. After his presidency and um, the Embargo Act, the Non-Interpretation Act, and then and finally the, the continuing you know, crisis. So, um, yeah, that's that letter. Um, next, we have a, oh, a John Adams letter. Um, this is... This is a fun letter. Um, there's actually a couple letters here where John Adams has kind of pulled in Jefferson in to talk about politics. My understanding of these Adams-Jefferson letters, the late life ones, is that you know Adams was the one who kind of wanted to to kind of talk about their problem, and Jefferson was the one who wanted to just ignore it and move on and and, and just be friends because he feared to go back and to talk about those things would undermine their renewed friendship, but. Somehow it really irked John Adams that they, they couldn't like explain each other. That's how he puts it in one of his letters. Like, you know, it'd be a shame if we died before we explained ourselves to each other. So um, this, um, this letter is, is about the parties. It is about the, the, growing, the growing political division in the United States and, and the different philosophies of the party. But I, I just want to point out one thing that he says here to, to Adams, which... You know, I don't think it's really fair, to be honest. He, he's got some impression, and he says this in some other letters too, he's got some impression that the Federalists had such a low opinion of human beings. And, and, and of course, the more democratic you are, you've got to have a more beneficent view of humanity, I would guess. I mean, even in the Madisonian idea, whatever you run the Federalist Papers, that, you know, a larger democracy, all the kind of negative parts will balance out or something, and then you'll kind of get out a moderation coming out of it but in general if you believe in more democracy you believe in the overall you know goodness of people i guess and 
you know, the Federalist having the more aristocratic maybe approach, the more government-centered approach, in his mind just didn't have faith in people and didn't really believe that people could could uh, speak for themselves, right? So here he even writes this directly to Adams. One of the questions you know on which our parties took different sides was on the improvability of the human mind in science and ethics and government. Those who advocated reformation of institutions pari pasta with the progress of science maintained that no definite limits could be assigned to that progress. The enemies of reform, on the other hand, denied improvements and advocated steady adherence to the principles, practices, and institutions of our fathers. Um, yeah, I mean, that's how deep he thought this division goes. It, it went down to even a fundamental difference of views about humanity. Um, and what, you know, in a way, I, I think this maybe continues in politics today. Um, in, you know, I've seen some studies that talked about like kind of the values of conservatives versus um, more progressive voices. And, and one thing you find is a greater respect for authority among conservatives, whether it's family or institutions or whatever. And, you know, it's, and there might be something to that, that there's always going to be a, I'm not saying one's bad or worse, but, you know, well, maybe I am, but it, it I, that there's always going to be a side in the political spectrum that's going to have its faith in, in institutions and in the way things are and in hierarchy, um, just because of some kind of misfaith in people, right? And there's always going to be an underside that that kind of is more optimistic about human nature and therefore is going to be a bit more beneficent in how it sets up its institutions and it sees people as reformable, right? It's, I guess it's the people who want to throw the switch, uh, the death penalty on everyone and those who, who see prison should be reformed or abolished or transformed into something that's going to actually help people. Um, so I don't want to place anything on Adams here or even the Federalists in general. I'm just saying that Jefferson is noticing this, this divide in... In, 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 in politics between kind of the hierarchicalists and the, and the more egalitarians. But for him, it comes down to actually a very different view of human nature entirely. Now, in this, this next letter, John Wales Epps, it's um, June 24th, 1813. And it's essentially Jefferson equivocating on, on, on banking in a way, in the same way he sort of equivocated on manufacturing. He's doing it here on banking. Um, he, he does say that, you know, he, I mean, the issue is wartime debts, right? How do you avoid issuing paper currency in wartime when the expenses of government increase greatly? And he, and he uses the British example because you know, they, they had a national bank and that helped fund their wars. And, and his kind of compromise is, you know, you pay off these debts in 19 years or you kind of, you, you may incur debts during an emergency, but you have to have a clear plan to to pay them off very very quickly. I mean, I don't think he has a he's made total peace with 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 banking and, and, and currency at this point. But he's he knows enough, and he's he's being practical enough that he thinks there are moments in which this takes place. But it's a it's a fairly long, detailed letter on kind of the economics of of money and banking and debt and government debt and all that. Um, he still doesn't think a perpetual large national debt is a good thing, and, and, and that, in, that, in that sense, his opinion hasn't changed that much. But I want to jump to a much more interesting and contemporarily relevant document, which is his letter to Isaiah, Isaac McPherson. Um, and I've never heard about this letter before. And maybe if someone has heard about it or saw it analyzed before, let me know. But he, it's about patents, and he talks about patents in a very, very interesting way. Uh, in a way that I basically agree with, um, you know, an intellectual property. 
first, let's say, you know, the Constitution gives the right uh, of Congress to issue patents, um, essentially intellectual property, for a period of time. And Jefferson acknowledges that the reason you do that is because you want to, um, you know, you want to encourage innovation, right? And if you don't have some uh, pecuniary, you know, benefit of invention, you're going to have less inventions. But on the other hand, he does, he, he gets to the deeper problem. And I think it's, it's even more of a problem today. And that is knowledge doesn't emerge in a vacuum, right? Um, he says here, if one person invents a knife convenient for pointing our, out our pens, another cannot have a patent right for the same knife to point our pencils. A compass was invented for navigating the sea. Another could not have a patent right for using it to survey land. A machine is threshing wheat has been invented in Scotland. A second person cannot get a patent right for the same machine to thresh oats, the third rye. So that's one problem with patents, right? Like the slight change idea, right? Like someone invents, um, you know, a phone and then just kind of someone adds like a, like a red sticker on it and says, oh, it's a new phone, right? So... You know, I, I'm exact. I don't know enough of patent law to say if, if this, you know, the context of this. But he gets to the deeper issue, which I think is all invention is based on is, sta is standing on the the, the the shoulders of giants. So he says things like the screw of Archimedes is an ancient, at least in the age of the mathematician, who died two thousand years ago, and he gives all these different examples of inventions that. Well, maybe not that many examples, but his idea here is essentially that, you know, each invention is building off others. And he really seems to have doubts whether you can patent new ideas, essentially, right? Like someone could invent the Archimedes screw, essentially, and then patent it. Like, what would be the justification for doing that, right? And I think this is even more of a problem in our more digital age where, you know, someone plays a song and then someone remixes it, right? Is the, is the remixing... Um, not a creative act. I, I don't want to judge which is more creative or better, but the remixing is a creative act. It is a value added in some sense to the original piece. But it's also from the perspective of strict intellectual property, a bit of a theft, right? And I know there's authors, I don't know if they're still now, but in the past who have even like opposed the idea of like libraries and things or, or you couldn't even hand off books to other people because that's a violation of, of copyright. So um, there is the more strict reading of, of copyright and intellectual property. And, and Jefferson here is on the more liberal side. And, and I think actually the logical inclusion of what he writes in this letter is there really isn't much of a grounding for intellectual property, except like short term patents to encourage innovation. You know, the, the idea that we give, you know, states rights, over, you know, rights, exclusive rights over certain ideas written by their ancestors, you know, for 80 years after after they died or something, I think is pretty um, preposterous. And I think Jefferson here is attacking that that idea. Um, now let's jump to another couple John Adams letters. Um, the first is on uh, the Code of Jesus. This is a bit of a rehashing of what he wrote to Gen Benjamin Rush, and we talked about in the last episode, where he's basically trying to understand Jesus in the context of other ancient writers and philosophers and thinkers and he kind of talks about the method of doing this he even talks about the the bible he wrote and this collection doesn't have the jefferson bible i, I don't know why uh, maybe because it's just the bible excerpted but you know jefferson did go through the bible 
or at least go through the New Testament, and he cut out the, the miracles. He cut out all the nonsense stuff, and he kept the straight philosophy, and he seemed to respect that straight philosophy quite a lot. And, and that's what he seems to, to convey to him. Um, and he basically seems to read the Bible you know, with a filter, and he's able to see the crap from the, what's good. And, and that's great. Um, it's, you know, I like this approach, and I like what he did there, just looking at Jesus as another philosopher from the ancient world that we evaluate like Socrates or Plato or anyone else. And he'll have words for Plato a little bit later. Um, around the same time, yeah, just a week later or so, he wrote another letter to John Adams on the question of the natural aristocracy. Now, this is kind of getting back into, into politics, and he knows he's getting back into politics, so he even kind of warns Adams, like, I'm not going to go there too much. But he does want to take on this issue of, of the idea of a natural aristocracy. Of course, the United States had made, you know, basically illegal true aristocracy, right? You couldn't be a... Um, uh, you know, and it, you couldn't have an inherited title, right, um, from from other countries. Those are those are legal in the United States, or at least don't have to be respected. But he does say here, I agree with you that there's a natural aristocracy among men. The grounds of this are virtue and talents. Formerly, bodily powers gave place among the aristocrats, but since the invention of gunpowder, has armed the weak as well as the strong with missile death, bodies, bodily strength like beauty, good humor, politeness, and other accomplishments have become an auxiliary ground for distinction. But there's also an artificial aristocracy found on wealth and birth without either talent or virtue. For with these, it would be belong to the first class. The natural aristocracy I consider is the most precious, precious gift of nature for the instruction, the trust, the government of society. Indeed, it would have been inconsistent in creation to have formed men for the social state, not to have prided virtue and wisdom enough to manage the concerns of society. So now we get right to the kind of Republican, early American Republican concept of, of virtue and, and natural aristocracy. Um, you know, I read all these documents. I'm on page 1300 now, and I don't remember him ever dealing with this directly before. But of course, it's such a huge part of how we understand the founders and how they understood republicanism and how they understood, like, you know, they wouldn't even use the term democracy, right? Their fear of democracy in part comes from their belief that leadership has to come from this natural aristocracy. And Jefferson so feared the Federalists because he thought they were bringing back more um, of maybe not the official aristocracy, but, you know, what he's calling here an artificial aristocracy. So just to recap, there's three here. There's the, the, the kind of the legal aristocracy, the formal aristocracy given by people by, you know, given to people by kings or whatever, right? You know, if you're the, the, the son of a son of a duke, right, you become a duke. Uh, on and on, right? And it's not through any wealth. He's like, or through any, not, I don't mean wealth, it's not through any effort or skill on your part that you maintain that title. He said, maybe in the old days when you had to like bop people on the head, we need people who could spend all day bopping people on the head, learning how to fight to do that. But now we have a gun and, and you can train somebody with a gun pretty quickly and to, he can fell a knight as easily as he can, can a peasant. Well, then artificial aristocracy then is that kind of the, the oligarchy, right? The, the aristocracy that emerges through wealth. Um, and I think he, I think Jefferson thinks that's what the Federals were, were inching towards in their policies. Um, so if we reject both aristocracy by wealth and aristocracy by title, we're left with only aristocracy by, by morals or virtue. And, and that's what he's trying to define, define here. And he thinks that's the best for, for Republican government. 
And he actually calls out Adams here. He says, you think it best to put the pseudo aristocracy into a separate chamber of legislature where they may be hindered from doing mischief by their coordinated branches. And where also they may be a protection to wealth against the agrarian and plundering enterprises of the majority of the people. I think that to give them power in order to prevent them from doing mischief is arming them for it and increasing instead of remedying the evils. For if the coordinate branches can arrest their action, they may, so may they of, that, of the coordinates. Mischief may be done negatively as well as positively. So he doesn't want to empower any aristocracy at all, except perhaps the natural aristocracy. But in his view, the natural aristocracy is, of course, going to do what's right for, for, for the people and for the majority, because they're not self-interested in any way. The wealthy are. They want more wealth or to help their friends be wealthy. And the formal aristocracy, of course, want to defend their position and privilege, because that's all they have to rely on. Um, but a very good little essay here. This essay really is, this letter really is an essay in Jefferson's views on natural aristocracy. So I urge you to, to glance at it if you can get a hold of it. It's dated uh, October 28th, 1813. So you can probably find it. Um, the end of the letter, though, is where, after talking all this politics, I mean, he kind of is aloof from it a little bit. But at the end, he, he kind of says, I'm not going to be, um, pulled into a, a strict political debate to talk about our conflicts. He seems willing to talk about politics in a broad sense with Adams, but he doesn't want to talk about like the political issue, the election of 1800, the specific conflict that, that broke up their friendship. And what does he say here? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I have thus stated my opinion on a point on which we differ, not with the view of controversy, for we have both too, we're both too old to change opinions, which are the result of a long life of inquiry and reflection. But on the suggestion of a former letter of yours that we ought not to die before we've explained ourselves to each other. We acted in perfect harmony, though a long and perilous contest for liberty and independence. A constitution has been acquired. And then he goes on with their achievements. And he's like, that's enough. We achieved these great things, imperfect as they may be. And let's not, let's not dwell on the past. But I think it's interesting in these letters that Adams really has this thing, you know, this whole thing in his mind that makes him need to explain and 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 get over this to to kind of face it right i guess in any relationship you always have the people who who want to talk about the problem and those who just kind of want to move on and and, and stick to their uh, emotions and, and and feelings for each other and let that carry the day um one more important letter from 1813 is included here and that's alexander humboldt again this is the guy who often writes to about latin america and uh Without going into too much detail, it's simply a, a nice, optimistic reading of, of, of the new independence movements in Latin America, the, the, the end of New Spain, and the, the, those, those are the states that formed with those Latin American revolutions. And Jefferson has some doubts that they'll be as secure and stable as, as the North American case. Um, he, he actually does think they'll, they'll run into military dictatorships. And it's actually true that Latin American states didn't have the same decoupling of military power and political power, you know, the, symbolized by Washington giving up his sword, re resigning before serving as president. Um, but nonetheless, it's overall a fairly optimistic um, picture of, of, of a hemisphere of republics, I guess, is, is what he's looking forward to. All right, moving ahead to 1814. 
Dr. Walter Jones, uh, letter dated January 2nd, 1814, all about uh, George Washington. Um, now, not to repeat myself too much from previous episodes, but his view of Washington was incredibly um, benevolent. He, he did not, even despite the most rancorous period in the Washington administration with Hamilton, he always blamed other people. He never thought, he, he never thought Washington, he didn't think Washington had a bad bone in him, really. Um, you know, yeah, full of praise for Washington here. It even sounds too over the top for someone like of Jefferson's character to talk about him this way. It's not very scientific or, or practical. Uh, what does he write here? His integrity was most pure. His justice, the most inflexible I've ever known. No motives of interest or consanguinity or of friendship or hatred being able to bias his decision. He was indeed, in every sense of his words, a wise, a good, and a great man. His temper was naturally high-toned, but reflection and resolution had obtained a firm and habitual ascendancy over it. If, however, it broke its bonds, he was the most tremendous in his wrath. Wow, well, you know. The perfect leader, I guess, in, in his view. Maybe he was. Maybe Washington was that way. I mean, I never met him. But, uh, I don't know. It's just, there's, this is one person I've, I've you know, one of, one of the people I've never seen Jefferson criticize. There's maybe some others, but uh, of the major people in his life, he's one of the few I didn't see him criticize. Uh, he also wrote a letter to Dr. Thomas Cooper, um, not long after that letter, where he talks about Christianity and the common law. The issue here is, you know, here's the issue, it really, it's the legal concept, that if the United States is going to apply some of common law practices, English law, common law practices, how do you avoid Christian influences being in that? Because that law is going to be based on Christian, uh, a Christian society. And so isn't that like a violation of the church and state mandate, right? Let's take something like uh, marriage, right? You've got something that's grounded in Christianity and has been mixed up with, with common law ideas. Um, nevertheless, Jefferson says, no, not to worry, not to worry, because common law actually predates Christianity. It goes, it goes even farther back into kind of traditions that predate Christianity. So common law is sort of a separate thing. And that, that's the heart of his argument here. Um, he writes... Uh, Right. If it ever was adopted, therefore, into the common law, it must have been between the introduction of Christianity and the date of the Magna Carta. But of the laws of the period, we have a tolerable collection of, by Lambert and Wilkins, probable but not perfect, but neither very def defective. And if anyone chooses to build a doctrine on the law of that period, supposed to have been lost or incumbent on him to prove it had existed, and what were its contents? Right. These were so far alterations of the common law and became themselves part of it. But none of these adopt Christianity as the part of common law. Um, so... He thinks if you go back into common law and into its origins, even if it doesn't literally predate Christianity, it's not itself a Christian addition into the law. Or the foundations of common law are, are sometimes separable. So I guess the argument would be there was separation of church and state or church and the law as far back as the Middle Ages in the roots of common law. Which, of course, I, I can't speak on, but that seems to be his opinion here. Um, Oh, there's a really great essay here um, to really essay. I can't say essay. These are letters, but some of them really in this period come off as letters, as essays. He's got like all this time on his hand, I guess, to write really good stuff, really fun and good stuff. Um, to Thomas Law, um, he's writing from the Poplar Forest. I don't know where that is. Is it, is it in Monticello or around his house? But so he's writing it outside. Uh, the moral sense is how the editor calls it. 
and uh, that's what it's about. It's it's an essay on 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 where more more where humans get the morality from. Now, ultimately, he thinks it comes from nature, and that nature is actually regionally contingent. He says men living in different countries under different circumstances, different habits, and regimens may have different utilities. The same act, therefore, may be useful and consequently virtuous in one country, which is injurious and vicious in a differently circumscribed. Um, now, I, I'm working in, in living in a country now, China, where there's kind of this fear or anxiety about talking about things like like universal values, right? And the Enlightenment kind of gets pointed out. And I've really picked up on some of this in my teaching of world history when I would teach about the Enlightenment. It's like students joke like universal values. Well, the um, yes, there are universal values in the Enlightenment, but it's also in the Enlightenment that you started getting a greater kind of appreciation for different cultures and awareness of the diversity of cultures and an acknowledgement that sure that you know, like, for instance, Diderot's commentary on Bougainville's voyages in the Pacific, where he, he clearly lays out that the people of the Pacific have very different sexual morality than that of the people of Europe. And it's just being acknowledged through study and knowledge and, 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 and knowing more about it. Um, so that, that's, that's his key conclusion. But he's got a lot here on egoism, on self-interest, and, and individuality. And he doesn't say that much about it, but... He kind of starts to develop it. He thinks self-love is not part of morality. It's its counterpoint. It's the sole antagonistic of virtue. So the virtue is defined here as essentially a, a benevolence to to society, right? And it just I, when I was reading this, I was thinking, wow, this sounds a bit like something Tocqueville wrote um, later in Democracy in America, where he he talks about he praises individualism. As kind of a really cool American contribution, but he's critical of kind of the egoistic tendencies of of American democracy. Uh, so it'll be interesting to compare this to what Tocqueville will say, and I'll, that's the next work we're going to look at is is democracy in America. Ah, another John Adams letter. Um, it's a nice, it's he he picks on two people in this letter. Um, the first is on Bonaparte. So it's 1814. So I think this is after Bonaparte is defeated at the Battle of Nations or very near defeated. Um, here's the letter where he, he criticizes Bonaparte as being basically ineffectual in, in, in the civil government. Like he didn't know what he was doing. And it suggests that he's basically like a dumb jock who, who got lucky and maybe was good at battle, but he had no business running a country. And, and that's that standard. It's not that interesting. But where it really gets funny is when he starts picking on Plato. Because he he's, tells John Adams. And I love, you know, to think about these letters as like two old guys playing chess, you know, uh, at, at a park and talking to each other. And, you know, and he's like, I was reading Plato the other day. And you know what a, you know idiot that guy was? And that's what he is. goes on for like two pages here about how ridiculous Plato is. And he's got this wonderful statement about like the forms where he says, his foggy mind is forever presenting the semblances of objects which have seen through the mist can be defined neither in form nor dimension. Yet this, which should have consigned him to early oblivion, really procured him immortality of fame and reverence. Um, so it's a really fun little stab at, at Plato and just this, 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 this old uh, empiricist Late in, in old age, picking up Plato's Republic and reading it and, and, and finding it completely worthless. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun, too. To, I, I enjoyed reading it. 
what else? Edward Coles. Edward Coles on emancipation. Um, every once in a while, Jefferson writes about slavery. And whenever he writes about slavery in these later, later letters, he says, I'm done talking about slavery. Let the younger people deal with that. Um, my position's known, and, and it's going to be for the next generation to decide. And, well, I guess the next generation wouldn't, but the generation after would, would finally decide that issue, and it would take the deaths of 600 million people and uh, one of the greatest wars of the 19th century to, to solve that, to reconcile that dilemma in the United States. Um, that the fact that Jefferson doesn't realize it as that runs that deep at this stage, I think is a bit troubling. He, maybe he knows. I mean, he often talks about slavery as a big problem and a conflict, but he's a bit flippant about it in this essay, I think. And then um, at the end, though, even after kind of saying this is for the next generation to deal with, he, he falls back on some of the most, some of his most vile racist language writing. Um, for men probably of any color, but of this color we know, brought from their infancy without necessity for thought or forecast, are by their habits rendered as incapable as children of taking care of themselves, and are extinguished promptly whenever industry is necessary for raising young. In the meantime, they are pests in society by their elder, uh, idleness and their depredations to which this leads us. Their amalgamation with the other color produces a degradation to which no lover of his country, no lover of excellence in the human character can innocently consent. He had children with Sally Hemings and he's writing this. He's writing this about his own children. Ah. Every time I, I start to like you a little bit, Tom, Thomas Jefferson, you, you write nonsense like that. Um, it's, it's, it's just a shame he couldn't uh, see what was in front of his face on, on, on the race issue. I guess, I don't know, it's history. So just a few more to talk about. Um, Peter Carr, he, he wrote to Peter Carr on September 7th, 1814, in a, with a long letter, again, something that's basically an essay, on um, basically a framework for mass public education in Virginia. Um, very, very complete. Uh, elementary schools that would educate essentially everyone. Then followed this by general schools that would do more specialized training, and then professional schools. And does he mention the University of Virginia here too? But no, I think that's that's separate to this. But he has kind of a three three tier system of schools he wants to establish: elementary schools in every county, um, and then and then general schools. I think pretty much as as distributed as those. Um, and then after graduate from there, they'll go on to professional schools where they'll learn various skills. Um, quite a detailed thing. He seems to really be interested in this, you know, building these educational institutions. It's, it's something that he really loved. And I guess one of his great achievements is the University of Virginia. So he gets his wish in a way in the establishment of that. Uh, we have the letter to Samuel H. Smith, where he's basically offering his library to for sale to the US government. I mentioned that a little bit before. Um, that's one of the few things that he did in these three years besides apparently write some pretty interesting letters. Um, but yeah, he's you know, offering to sell his books. These will become the foundation of the Library of Congress. Um, I think, were they, were they destroyed at some point? Was there a fire later on that destroyed most of those books? I was at the Library of Congress and I, I picked up, I got a book, you know, 
from the Jefferson collection, but I don't know if that was a copy to replace the original Jefferson ones. That, that's what I that's what I took it as. Um, and then there's two more, but I'll just kind of deal with these together. Um, one was to William Short, which talks about the necessity for the war, and the other was to to Lafayette uh, in 1815. Uh, which was on the situation in France and the war with England. And both of them are very, really vigorous defenses of the American war against Great Britain. So I guess that's it. That's all I'm going to talk about with these, these letters. Um, an interesting b b batch, actually. I, I, I really enjoyed these. Um, so the next episode will be our final um, um, plunge into Thomas Jefferson letters. We'll look at the letters written in 1816 to 1826. Um, so we're going to look at a little bit more than a decade. He, he dies July 4th, 1826, of course. So um, it's, it's a little bit more than 100 pages. It, it's just going to be the remainder of the book. I think it's about 130. So, um, you know, we'll see what he's thinking about. His, his pace of writing slows down significantly in the 1820s. So there won't be as many to, to talk about. And they often are actually quite shorter. But I'm looking forward to finishing up with my thoughts on, on Thomas Jefferson and this this exploration of his his writings. So as always, thanks for listening. If you have any of your own thoughts about Jefferson's uh, views as reflected in this this chunk of, of letters, please uh, leave a comment below or send me an email. And I'll, I'll see you next time with uh, the finale of this series on the writings of Thomas Jefferson. Sunshine.